With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy. And uh, Ryan, I'm getting a bit of a deja vu right mm. now. I'm feeling like we're about to do a podcast from 2020 or from 2020, early 2021, because there's COVID on the mind. Yep. Things are starting to, cases at least in Ontario are starting to go up again, but also we're seeing COVID closures with NHL teams, the Ottawa Senators. That's why I want to start this podcast. Yep. We have the Ottawa Senators, three games postponed this week. Ten players, at least ten players, and assistant coach Jack Capuano are in COVID-19 protocol. And we it was revealed it was – I don't think everyone knew this, but I know Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff put it out there earlier this week that the NHL, there is a clause in the Olympic agreement in which they can pull out if they don't feel the conditions are safe for players, they can do that by January 10th. So that's how I want to start this episode. Mm. Um, I want to get your thoughts on that. And do you think this is going to happen? Do you think that the Olympics are in jeopardy? I think it's a legitimate concern. And it's it's really interesting because, you know, obviously pretty much everybody in the NHL is vaccinated. But, you know, you can still contract COVID and you might not be getting really sick, but, you know, you still have to... Um, you know, keep it from spreading elsewhere. And, and obviously with Ottawa, it's a very serious situation where they have so many players out and, you, you know, you have to think about uh, players spreading it to their, their families or to other teammates or even to other teams. So it, it totally makes sense, uh, even if it's, you know, even if the cases aren't as severe in terms of the symptoms, I mean, you, you got to shut it down. Uh, it's just the right thing to do. And I think, you know, with the NHL, Long term, they have to look at the viability of their own schedule um, because, you know, they're going to have to make up these Ottawa games and and who knows, you know, where the dominoes fall from here. So it's it's interesting because it's it may not be the same kind of life and death situation that we saw pre vaccines, but it's still something that's very concerning and, and that needs to be dealt with. So. You know, I think the NHL, even if they have to be kind of conservative on and conservative on this, and uh, you know, be more cautious than necessary, I think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Olympics, it's it's a weird proposition in the in the times we live in. And you know, I know a lot of people love the Olympics, but is it the right thing to do? I mean, that's a big question, and it, it's one that I think the NHL has to keep revisiting as long as they can before mm-hmm. that deadline. And especially, it's not like it's the previous Olympics, the Summer Olympics, that in which the athletes, that is their be-all, end-all. In yeah. this case, it would be pausing an active season. So yeah. it is very different. Um, I do think it's a legitimate concern as well. Because 
especially if you factor in just the NHL's interests, right? The NHL equals the owners. The owners, they never want the Olympics to happen. They, they're taking on all the risk for their players. They're not making money off the Olympics. They're always anti-Olympics. The players are always pro. That's always a, a, a point of contention. And it was considered a concession to the players when they struck the last CBA and are sending the players back. The players obviously considered considered a, a dream to go. And the players who don't go love the little vacation they get sure. in the middle of the season as well. But the owners, they don't want this. The NHL... Before the season, they made two schedules. Yeah. And like that backup schedule should have been a hint that they were prepared for this type of scenario. I kind of like brushed it off, but it's like it's right there. They can adjust to that. They can go to that backup schedule. Yeah. And I don't know if this one situation with Ottawa, we also had San Jose. I don't think we're there yet. Mm. But if we see another team shut down and we see significant chunks of the schedule affected, I think the NHL could be quick to pull the plug. Unless maybe we could see players getting booster shots in time for early January, because then their immunity would be a bit stronger and the odds of contracting it would go down a little bit. Um, so I, I don't think the Olympics are dead in the water, but if we're seeing more of these shutdowns like we got early last season, the idea of piling everybody onto planes and sending them to Beijing, I think it's a concern. I'm not saying I, I, I don't want the Olympics. I'm, mm. I'm very pro-Olympics. I think it's so much fun. It's special. We haven't gotten best on best since 2014 in, in an Olympic setting. But if we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the owners who they don't like the Olympics, they just don't. I don't know why I did this. What, what am I doing? What is, Sassy what is, man. What is this? What am I? I'm Jerry Springer? Like, I don't know what I'm doing there. <laughs> and this is a serious matter. Where did that come from? I, I honestly don't know. But regardless, I, I think we should be worried just from mm. the owner's perspective. Speaking of things that, that are causing concern, at least in their own market, the Vancouver Canucks are off to a horrific start. They have lost seven of their last 10 games. They're seventh place in the Pacific Division. And this is a team, even though they missed the playoffs last year, they made a lot of offseason moves. Last year, obviously, COVID really derailed their season. I remember talking to Thatcher Demko before the start of the season, and it's almost like they felt that that season didn't really represent who they were. And here they are, really struggling. So what do you do? Do you fire Travis Green as coach? Do you fire GM Jim Benning? Do you do both? Do you do neither? Do you make trades? Mm. What do you do if you're the Vancouver Canucks right now? Well, I, I think... It's at the point where you kind of have to clean house on the management side. I mean, they got a lot of contracts that are tough to move. So I'm not sure how much you can really do trade-wise. But, you know, watching the Canucks play, you know, going back to, you know, uh, last Saturday against Vegas where they take a 2 nothing lead, uh, you know, after the first period, they're winning 2-1. They lose that game 7-4. It just it's a lot of details that they're missing right now. There's a lot of cohesion that they're missing. And, you know, I feel like every time I watch the Canucks this year, you know, Thatcher Demko is doing way more than he should be as a goaltender. I mean, he is one of the best young goalies in the league, but he ends up getting peppered. And I don't think it's his fault. And, you know, I think because of the lack of details and cohesion, that's on Travis Green. But the construction of the roster is on Jim Benning. And I mean, realistically, he sh probably should have been gone a long time ago. I mean, he's made a lot of moves where they were looking at the president, you know, at the present, uh, the short term, sacrificing the long term, uh, sort of quick fixes. And, and it really didn't work. And, you know, he's had a lot of salary cap issues and, you know, they, they still do. If you think about it, um, I, I just, I go back to that, that bubble team that played so well and coming out of that, it just felt like all the wrong moves were made, you know, and, you know, Tyler Toffoli, they let him walk. And then 
for me, Chris Tanev was the real kind of like load bearing player there. And I feel like we've seen this numerous times recently where might not be the sexiest player on the team, Mm -hmm. but there's a certain kind of veteran defenseman that can just settle things down and really help a team. And, you know, I I think Chris Tanev for the Canucks was that player. I I think, you know, we've seen that with Matt Niskanen uh, for a couple of teams that really could have used him. And obviously he retired. Um, I would also say you look at the Islanders this year, they're struggling. I think Nick Letty might've been that guy for Mm -hmm. them now that he's gone. So it, it feels like you can fire Benning for the bad start now, or you could fire him as sort of a lifetime achievement award, but he's got to go. Yeah, yeah. And it's, the point you make about Chris Tanev, too, it, it really affected Quinn Hughes. Quinn Hughes is not being the same player in his own end, especially without Chris Tanev. Mm-hmm. And it's strange because this team has so much talent in like a video game way on paper. Their yes. team, if you're playing a video game, you'd want to be Vancouver. They're fun, right? They have so much skill, whether it's Pedersen or Hughes or Horvat or Besser, Pud Coles and... Thatcher Demko has been great considering the situation he's in this year. Connor Garland, there's just a lot of talent there, but I think we have to, to wonder, is there just a flaw in the construction of the team? Because mm-hmm. consistently, even that team that went that, that made a run in the bubble, that team was not a good defensive team. Mm-hmm. It was a good offensive team, but it allowed a lot of chances. This year they have the worst penalty killing in the NHL, the Canucks do, 62%, I believe. It's yeah. a nightmare. And what's really concerning to me is Elias Pettersson is just not – the same player as he was a couple years ago. I don't know whether he's just being broken down with a couple of nagging injuries. He is a player that's taken a lot of punishment on a relatively slight frame. So I don't know whether it's made him more hesitant or whether he's just fighting through kind of nagging type of injuries that are kind of hidden. I don't know what it is, but he's not the same player. So if you're looking at him, you're looking at special teams and and star players struggling. To me, you have to look at coaching first. You need Mm -hmm. a restart. A new mind coming in there might be able to change the structure of the team and jumpstart a struggling player as well. And also, if you look at just the hierarchy, whether it's fair or not, you always go coach first, then GM, because the GM will say, well, hey, it's not me. He's going (laughs) to try and pass the blame and take out the coach. Um, You could make a case, certainly, that both need to go. Uh, Jim Benny took over in 2014. Canucks, they've had seven seasons with him as GM. They made the playoffs twice in seven years and right now they're tracking to make it twice in eight years Mm -hmm. but i'd say for now you have to start i think to me it's like it's hard to replace a gm in the middle of a season obviously we've seen it in the nhl for different reasons not hockey reasons with stan bowman Mm -hmm. and with bob murray but if we're talking hockey related replacement it's easier to do in the summer when you're kind of just starting over or before a draft at least mid-season though you can try and make a jump start move with a coach and we've seen time and again where teams are off to bad starts the first quarter of the season they get a new coach and they go on a run often those teams win stanley cups right so i think now is the time it's not too late and i think Travis Green maybe does need to go. I think we need a reset with that room. Uh, We saw, of course, earlier this week, the Hall of Fame class of 2020 that was carried over to 2021. So there was no actual 2021 class this year. And now we're looking at the 2022 class. Everyone knows it's pretty much a given that Henrik and Daniel Sedin are going to get in as first ballot Hall of Famers Mm -hmm. in their first year of eligibility. But I'm curious, who else is on your list that deserves to come in with them. Maybe Roberto Luongo, he's another name that I don't know if he's a first ballot, but he's close. So I don't know if that's who's on your mind or do you have someone else on your mind? Yeah. Well, to begin with, I, I would say Roberto Luongo, uh, he would be a first ballot guy for me. If you just look at his 
career numbers, I mean, he's one of the all-time greats. And, you know, the fact that he puts such a stamp on two different franchises, both Florida and Vancouver, I think, uh, you know, speaks pretty well to to what he has meant to the hockey world. Um, you know, he has international play as well. You know, didn't win a Stanley Cup, but, you know, international success with Team Canada. Um I, you know, I know from preparing this, you had some some pretty good names that you were going to mention. So I'm going to go in a different way. And this comes off a, a conversation I had with an NHL GM recently. There are no scouts in the Hall of Fame right now, like pure, you know, pure mm-hmm. scouts. And, uh, you know, I mentioned this to uh, Brian Costello, uh, one of our senior editors, who's kind of our Hall of Fame guru. And he was saying, you know, they would have to go in as a builder. Uh, and right now it's just sort of like GMs and owners that have gone on builders. But I think it's time for uh, a scout or two to go in. So, you know, the the most obvious one would be uh, Barry Fraser, the longtime Edmonton Oilers director of scouting, who, I mean, if you look at how they built their classic franchises, their drafts were incredible from 79 to 81. So three drafts, they went. Kevin Lowe, Mark Messier, Glenn Anderson, and then they got Paul Coffey, Yari Curry, uh, Andy Moog was in that draft as well. Then Grant Fuhrer and Steve Smith. All those players came in three drafts, wow. and like most of them are Hall of Famers. And most of them were not first rounders. Yeah, Mark Messier was a third rounder. Yari Curry, I think he was like fifth round yeah, or something. I think like the that. Oilers and they did the homework on Yari Curry, where a lot of teams didn't know he was going to come and play, and yeah. the or like, or they, I think. They thought that he had military requirements. Right. Whereas right. the Oilers did the homework and knew, and I assume that's Barry Fraser, testament to probably his work, right? Yeah. They knew that he didn't have those obligations and was going to be able to come to the NHL. Exactly. And with Messier, I know uh, a lot of people didn't get to see him play uh, early on, but Fraser had, you know, he had his intel. Uh, he did his homework. And then, of course, you know, if you're looking at another scout, Hawk and Anderson, the longtime Detroit Red Wings scout, who, discovered Thomas Holmstrom, Pavel Datsuk, Henrik Zetterberg, all these guys, super late rounders who turned into Stanley Cup winners and, you know, sort of future Hall of Famers in a couple of cases and obviously integral parts of that franchise. Uh, Hawk and Anderson really kind of, you know, set a template for European scouts and and how they can kind of work the draft for their franchises. So uh, that's my pitch. Uh, it's, it's, oh, it's long overdue that scouts get their, uh, their tip of the hat. So I'm going to go that way and, and leave you with some, uh, some good names. All right. I like it. And I think Roberto Longo is going to get in. I don't know if he's first ballot for me because the sort of defining characteristic of his career is being always second best, like losing in the final, being a runner up for a Vezina trophy multiple times, but he never got to the top of the mountain. So based on that logic alone, I want to see Tom Barrasso get a push mm-hmm. because that man has two Stanley Cup rings, a Vezina trophy and a Calder trophy. Mm. And just because he doesn't like the media doesn't mean he shouldn't be a Hall of Famer. He he checks all the boxes to me. Uh. That's someone I'd look at that I feel like no one talks about anymore. Um, other intriguing pick to me, I think Carolyn Ouellette. I think it's only a matter of time for her. She's an absolute winning machine. I think she had four Olympic gold medals and six world championships. So she's part of that like legendary class of Canadian players. And fascinatingly, I think her wife, Julie Chu, is at a USA hockey institution. And her resume is, is I think, very close to Hallworthy. So mm. if you're going to bring in the Sedins as a tandem, that would be so cool to bring in the married couple as a tandem. True. And they're, it's not just a stunt. Like, they're legitimately deserving. Totally. So that would be really, really cool. So maybe that would be my class, the Sedins and then Ouellette and Chu. Um, but I'd say on the radar, too, Barrasso. I said before, if Guy Carboneau is a Hall of Famer, then Rod Brindamore has to be. He has two Selkie trophies. Carboneau had three, but Rod Brindamore also had a 
1184 points in the Stanley Cup. So he accomplished a lot more offensively. Mm. So I think he should be there. And of course, the hipster pick is still Alexander McGill. Totally. Yes. And I support it. He was a better than a point per game player and played probably two thirds of his career during dead puck. Yeah. So I, I totally get that as well. But Luongo, I'm not totally sure. A lot of people talk about Daniel Alfredson as well. And he has the volume, but he just was never to me. He wasn't really close to the top of the heap yeah. throughout his career. You know, if a guy like Bernie Federico is in, then, you know, who, who also was not elite, elite for his career as well, yeah. I guess eventually Alfredson gets in. But again, to me, he's sort of a, you wait for a down here sure. and then he can get his, his name called. Yeah. I, I think to me, though, I think Brasso even before Alfredson, though, I want to keep banging that drum. So earlier this week, Tuka Rask was, it feels like a TMZ report. He was spotted at the Boston Bruins facility. <laughs> Page and, six. Yes, exactly. It started some speculation about him maybe recovering quicker than expected from his surgery or just staying in touch with the Boston Bruins with the possibility of coming back. I still don't know if it makes sense, though, logistically for him to return to the Boston Bruins. So I want you to predict what happens to Tuka Rask when he's fully recovered from the hip surgery. Does he come back and join the Bruins this year? Does he play at all this year or does he join another team this year? All right. Here's my prediction is that Tuka Rask plays – one more game for the Boston Bruins in Boston. They give, you know, the Bruins faithful a chance to properly serenade a guy who has meant so much to the franchise over the past sort of decade plus. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's close to the end for him. I, it's hard to see him playing for another franchise, uh, particularly with, you know, recovering from injuries. But I feel like he's the kind of guy where you got to see him in the crease one more time. And I think that, you know, Boston is the sort of organization that they, they have, I would say they have the best culture in the NHL in their dressing room. Um, but also I think they know what the right thing to do is for a guy like Tuka Rask. And, and that would be to give him one more game in the crease. So everybody can see him, you know, he can do another lap, you know, at the end of the game, sort of, stick tap to the fans. The fans can give him a standing O. So that's my prediction. Cause I mean, they're getting good goaltending from Jeremy Swayman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Linus Allmark has been okay um, at best, but you know, we don't really know how this Bruins season is going to shake out. Maybe they're a playoff team. Maybe they're not. Um, but I think you got to give Rask one game just to sort of say goodbye. Interesting. Interesting take. I did not see that coming. Cause I'm, yeah. my head's in a completely different place. Just because Rask is not that old. He's like five or six years younger than Mike Smith, right? He's only, what, 33, 34 years old. So theoretically, if Rask has the desire to keep playing, he has plenty of good years left. Mm-hmm. The problem is he's he seems to be very much a man of principle. He's a devoted family man. He seems to, he says so many times he only wants to be a Bruin and won't play anywhere else. Yeah. So he does seem to me like the type who would re- just retire if there isn't a fit for him and, it, and it's hard to see a fit for him right now, Jeremy Swayman is waiver exempt. So there is a loophole there where you could sign Rask part way through the season, send Swayman down, but Swayman's been better than Allmark. Yeah. So you kind of need him and Allmark signed long-term. So that kind of pushes out Rask even for next year. Yeah. So to me, it's going to come down to how much does Rask still want to win a Stanley cup? He has a ring technically, but that was as a backup yeah. to Tim Thomas. He's lost two finals. And if he's willing to, spend some time away from his family and pursue a cup. I think there's a great opportunity for him in Edmonton this year because we know the Oilers need help in mm-hmm. that. And they're really looking like a, a true Stanley Cup contender at the moment. They're, they're reaching that next level. So 
if, if Rask is willing to make that trek, because obviously it's going to, it's not close to Boston, then maybe it works, but I can't see a fit for him in Boston right now. So if I have to make a guess, I'm going to say he doesn't play at all this season. He mm-hmm. reevaluates in the summer, but it would be fun to see him just go for it because it sounds like he's going to be healthy enough for the stretch run. So it would, it would be awesome to see him take a shot and roll with it with Edmonton. Um, Looking at the Olympics, obviously we expressed earlier in this episode that we're a bit concerned about them happening. But if they're going to happen, mm. it's still fun to discuss the hypotheticals. Uh, I had a blog on our website earlier this week about players that were upping their Olympic stock and kind of entering the discussion. Guys like Troy Terry, also yeah. guys like Carey Price who might be feeling better. Uh, but for guys like Terry, it's still complicated. Same with Lucas Raymond because we have to know – they have to be on that uh, the long list of 55 yeah, yeah. players. So if they're not, they're not really eligible anyways. But – it's possible that they are on the long list. I want to flip it and ask you now, who do you think is playing his way off an Olympic team at the moment? Are you concerned about anyone in particular? Yeah, there's a couple of names and they're both Canadian because obviously Canada has sort of the most competitive pool because they're so deep at every position. Although I would say they're not that deep in net, um, you know, but the Carey Price news is obviously great because if you have Carey Price in net for Canada, you basically have the gold medal. Um, but I would say like Marc-Andre Fleury right now, I had him penciled in as like a solid number two earlier on, but I mean, he's not playing well. And, you know, his goals saved uh, above expected is one of the worst in the league right now. And, you know, Chicago is just kind of a mess overall. I, I still think that if you bring Fleury, I mean, he is a good guy in the room. Um, but I think that the competition is a little more stiff right now where it's not really a given with him because he hasn't been playing well. And it is a bit of a circus that he is in in Chicago, which obviously is not his fault. But, um, you know, the the vibes just aren't very good. I would also say and, and maybe this was just a prediction that I was making, but, you know, heading into the season, I was looking at Bo Horvat as a guy that was kind of that perfect Swiss army knife forward for Canada where, you know, he can play center, but you could put him on the wing because you're so deep at center. He could do a lot of different things for you. We know he is, you know, an intense player that can amp it up in the playoffs. Um, But again, you look at Vancouver right now, they're not playing great. Horvat's just kind of okay. He hasn't been that difference maker that we've seen in the past. Mm -hmm. So I feel like he was probably a bubble guy at best. And I think he's, him and the Canucks have sort of played him off the bubble right now. Yeah. It's funny. The first name that came to my mind was Seth Jones because of the struggles in Chicago, but he's already on the team. He's already been named. So it's kind of like, can they unname him? And right? he's like a point per game player. Yeah. He's still putting up offense, but yeah. it's been, you know, obviously a bit of a circus in Chicago. So he doesn't really count. Um, but I'm looking at bubble players as well. And I, and I did gravitate toward Canada. To me, Mark Shifley, someone who's got one goal in his, eight, his first eight games. And if you look at the depth that Canada has at center, he was going to be a guy that I think needs to play his way onto the team because he's in that bubble tier with like Matt Barzell, maybe yeah. John Tavares. Although John Tavares is in that Roots ad modeling Canada clothing, so that to me suggests he's going to be on the team. But I think Shifley, especially if you go down to your fourth line, you're probably going to get guys who are more of a, of a like a checkers ilk, right? Strong Couturier, Ryan O'Reilly, players like that. Yeah. So based on that, I, I, I think Shifley, the slow start could hurt him. Uh, and also Jacob Chickren, just Arizona has been – a nightmare. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were looking at him as someone who might have might have played his way into the team. But uh, then again, maybe you don't blame him for what's happening in Arizona. But he he overachieved last year. He or I should say he overcame that last year playing on a bad team. Yeah. This year he's been absolutely caved in. So it's kind of it's a tough situation to see. And for someone who again 
had some competition. We don't know if he was going to be on the team, but he was probably on the list of 55. Yeah. But I, I don't think right now he's on the inside. He's probably on the outside. Right. Um, so Matt Mamichkov, at the it's funny, I've never said the name of this tournament out loud, the Karyala Cup. Karyala right? Cup. Nailed there it. are no hard J's in Europe, as yes. I like to say. That's right. It's a Yessi Pool Yarvi. That's example. right. I mean, hey, I respect it. It's fine. It. It's kind of best on best. No, it's not. It, it's just kind of random. Okay, fine, fine. But he's 16 years old. He did the lacrosse goal. It's funny. I saw someone complaining, like, don't call it the Michigan anymore. But, like, who cares? That's where it originated. Why not Whatever. call it the Michigan? Yeah. Um, so I, I like to ask this about him every once in a while because he just seems to be so impressive, so young. Yeah. And it's reminding me of the way we talked about guys like McDavid or Crosby or Betchkin when they were coming up in their mid-teens, not even their late-teens. Yeah. So – what do you think is the ceiling here? People want to say Alex Ovechkin. I don't think they're the same kind of player, so I don't. I don't want to just go to that facile comparison. But I want right. to know. You obviously have a lot more prospect knowledge of guys before they make the show or, or mm-hmm. team development systems than I do. So I want your perspective on who you think is the comparison for Mitchkov. Yeah, and you know, just to, to back up a bit on that Karyala Cup. What's really interesting <laughs> is Mitchkov has become. He, he's the youngest player ever to suit up for the Russian senior team. So younger than Alex Ovechkin, younger than Vladislav Treciak. So, and, and he scored, you know, <laughs> and he was a contributor. So he wasn't just on the bench there. So that gives you some historical context as, as of the pool we're talking about right now. But I think you're right because Alex Ovechkin has always been, you know, like a bull, like a big dude, you know, like always been like 200 plus pounds um, you know, sort of that powerful frame. And, uh, you know, he derives a lot of his, uh, his offense from that. Matvey Mitchkov, obviously not the same. I'm uh, sorry, Matvey Mitchkov. Um, I see Nikita Kucherov. And it's funny because, you know, with Mitchkov's contract, you know, he's probably going to play for SKA St. Petersburg until he's like 21. He's already got a, a long-term deal there. And, you know, that is kind of the crown jewel of the KHL right now. And they're obviously going to get him minutes as he continues to uh, progress. So Nikita Kucherov, if you look at him and, you know, he took a bit of a long route to the NHL after Tampa drafted him. You know, he was in Russia. Then he went and played junior in the Quebec League, you know, had a year in the AHL. And then, you know, his first season in the NHL didn't really make much of an impact. But then his second year, I think it's 65 points. Mm-hmm. And like 29 goals. And from there, it was just skyrocket. So with Mitchkov, I think he he could be Kucherov and like sort of peak Kucherov. And again, the thing to remember, you know, Kucherov already has a, a season where he had 128 points. He had 100 a year before that. And then, of course, you have the injuries. You have the pandemic where he hasn't played that many games. Mm-hmm. But if you think about what a, a healthy Nikita Kucherov would have been the past couple of years... I think it's safe to say he's averaging 105, 110 points. Yeah. So I think Matvey Mitchkov is going to have that kind of impact where he is the Kucherov that was promised. Mm-hmm. If it, you know, if you can put it that way, like I think he's going to be a player where after like maybe one year in the NHL, you see him go like 85 points and then like a hundred points and then like 115 points. And he does that for like five, six seasons mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote down Kucherov as well for my comparison point. It's a shame because to me, at least from what I'm like, I haven't seen him that much, but when I've seen what I've heard, it sounds like he'd be ready to be a high, a high impact player at 18 in the NHL. So it's it's too yeah. bad we're going to lose those seasons. But 
to me, the skill set, it seems to be very Kucherov-like because it's just it's just pure scoring in every possible way. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a deadly shot, but it's an accurate shot. It's speed. It's elusiveness, intelligence. Yeah. It's just like can beat you in any possible way, which to me reminds me of Kucherov because he can score himself. He can use feints and fakes and set up other teammates because there's the threat of him scoring. He can do those moves where he fakes like he's going to deke and lets the puck slide off his stick. He can do kind of everything. He's so versatile. Whereas Ovechkin greatest goal scorer of all time in my opinion but i don't think versatility would be the defining characteristic of him at all Mm -hmm. if anything it was like something he had to overcome being too one-dimensional a few years into his career whereas i think mitchkov to me i think he's going to be a perennial 100 point score regularly challenging for the art ross that type of thing yeah um so let's get to some some listener questions i'm already laughing at this one because i i can just hear a voice in my head with what i think this guy sounds like um his name is scott hoffman and uh, <laughs> his question is a little angry, so I'm just going to ask it in what I think his voice is. Okay. What is the dirtiest player in the game never gets suspended or even fined? Oh, that's right. His last name is Crosby. So I think this guy's probably a Flyers fan who thinks that Sid- – well, he would probably call him Cindy Crosby, as people called him at the beginning of his career, and just assumes that Crosby can do no wrong. So, Scott, I can tell you're angry. We're going to try and work through this. Um, and I know what you're referring to, of course, is the play. Uh, it was Martin Favre, the, the spinning move by Crosby that kind of threw him into the boards yeah. earlier this week or a few days ago. Uh, and there was no supplementary supplemental discipline for Sidney Crosby for that play. I watched it a couple more times before this episode just to kind of get my take on it. I don't think it was a suspendable play. If you look at Crosby's head, his face, what's he doing during the hit? He's looking ahead. He's facing the play. Mm. he's not going to try to deliver a deadly blow right. he's trying to get himself back into the play he's staring at the puck and to me that's relevant because he's clearly just trying to move someone out of his way just so he can rejoin the play i don't think he even knew where he was relative to the boards and admittedly i think it was quite the sell job by by february as well i think he just like just did quite the topple i almost think it was an embellishment and then he punished mm. himself by flying into the boards because he was just flipping like it's not like Sidney crosby is tom wilson right he's a strong guy but yeah come on so if Scott Hoffman's referring to that play, I don't think it was a suspendable play. And to me, I think one of the most tired and inaccurate narratives is just the idea that for, all, for whether you support the Department of Player Safety or not, one thing they don't do is play favorites. It's just not uh-huh. a thing. Like Ovechkin's been suspended lots of times. They've suspended mm-hmm. star players. They've suspended, suspended star players for playoff games like Kucherov, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just not a thing. So I don't buy into that narrative. Yeah, it's funny. Like, what would you even call that penalty? You know, is it like, is it interference? Is it like super roughing, super holding? Or yeah, it's funny. No, I I agree. I I think it was just kind of a. To me, I, I was kind of joking. Like, if a play is that funny, you should get you shouldn't get a penalty for it. You know, like just watching it, I was like, that's just funny. And Farber, he's, he's not a small guy. I yeah. mean, he's a pretty you know, he's a pretty big kid. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. They don't play favorites. And, uh, you know, I mean, Scott, you know, uh, glad you're a passionate fan. Um, what you probably want to hear is that the NHL hates your team and loves Sidney Crosby. Uh, but it's it's not the case. But treat yourself to something at Wawa. Yeah, excellent idea. <laughs> Next question is from K-Ring. K-Ring wants to know, what can parents do to protect their children from predators, racism, homophobia, and bullying? The NHL clearly doesn't care. And hashtag Kyle Beach. Um, it's a great question. I think there are a lot of different different ways to sort of 
improve the culture. Um, as Sheldon Kennedy was sort of pointing out to me last week, there is coach vetting happening now in mm. you know, Hockey Canada, and it's being extended to parents and anyone who's even adjacent to the game. They're, I think they're increasing the, the sort of um, vetting requirements, which mm. is great. Um, and I think it's really important just getting stories out. So that's why Kyle Beach, what he did is so powerful. And if you're looking at it through a homophobia context, when people come forward like Brock McGillis and Luke Prokop and Yannick Duplessis, I think they're becoming heroes and more and more people are following them and they're help, they're helping sort of normalizing uh, LGBTQ culture in the game. Same with um, people like Jessica Platt, right? So I think the more role models we see there, I think it's going to be um, less common to see homophobia and bullying because I think the culture is going to be more accepting. And it's interesting, I did talk to the GM of the St. John Sea Dogs, Trevor Georgie, a couple of weeks ago about this topic. And because he had had Brock McGillis come out and speak to the team about inclusivity. And one thing he said that really struck me um, was the fact that, you know, this new generation of players, that they're Gen Z kids. And what he finds is he's seeing kids come into his team that are very open to being more inclusive and learning about it. And they're more aware, even, even just little things. He said, like, his his team, they have a, a they, they follow women's hockey a lot more. They have a lot of more awareness, a lot more awareness on the challenges of first nations players mm. they're just generally more socially conscious because that's their generation so the way he sort of put it was we need to focus not just on the players but on leadership because the leadership is, is who can who can do things like bring brock mcgillis to talk to a team so it's a really good point from georgie um so that's an example i, I think i guess i gave a bunch of examples of, of things you can do to try and create a safer environment we still have a long way to go but i think we are seeing progress Hmm. You know, and what I would look at is at the grassroots level, you know, if you're a parent and you want to make sure that your, your child is safe from predators, uh, obviously one be as involved as you can. Uh, but also, you know, don't let the chasing of a pro hockey dream uh, get in the way of just sort of normal common sense. And I think this is something that it's, it's not reserved to hockey. We've seen it all different sports, um, you know, both boys sports and girls sports. But, you know, if, if you're, if your uh, kid has a coach that wants to do something that, that sounds wrong to you, don't let it happen. You know, like if, you know, like a coach should never say like, Oh yeah, you know, just, you know, we're going to like share a hotel room or like, Oh yeah, I need your kid one-on-one -on -one for this weekend. We're going to go off to this different place. Um, you know, that should raise some antennas. And, you know, I, I, I think in the past there have been situations where parents have said like, Oh, well, you know, this is like elite sports and they got to do different things and it requires a lot of commitment, but it's like at the end of the day, that just doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. And I think you really have to sort of divorce the concept of elite sports being different from anything else in life. And you should treat it like if, you know, if your kid was just, you know, like, like a teacher at school, like a coach is like a teacher at school. Um, so I would say, you know, be as involved as you can keep the lines of communication open with your kids and, and just, you know, be aware that there are some, there are predators out there and, you know, hopefully with more vetting, they can be weeded out before they can do damage. But keep that uh, keep that awareness. Mm -hmm. Well said. Uh, we'll do one more listener question. This is from Stevie Dubs. Are the ducks nasty? I assume by nasty, Stevie is referring to good. I assume it's like nasty in a cool way. Are they, na are they nasty? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure yet. So obviously, Troy Terry's been an amazing story this year. So has Ryan Getzlaff. Yeah. Um, John Gibson has been playing 
really Gibson-esque. well so Yeah, he's sort of returning to form. At the same time, Trevor Zegers is starting slow, and I, I think you could be getting into a dangerous situation with the Ducks where they trick themselves in being good because they mm. have a, a fast start to the season, and that could be troublesome because you're kind of rebuilding. You have Josh Manson, Hampus Lindholm, and Ricard Raquel that are all pending UFAs. And I think it's important to get something for those guys. If, you, if you're not mm. re-signing them, you can get a really nice return for each of those players and really fortify that rebuild uh, because I don't think the Ducks are there, are there yet. They don't have all the pieces they need. Mm. They've done well in their last few drafts. They, they now have their best prospect class yeah. since Getz left Perry, Bobby Ryan, right? With, with um, Trevor Zegras and Jamie Drysdale and Mason McTavish as well. It's a great generation of prospects, but they still need more, I think. So you, I, I think it's getting ahead of ourselves and we kind of think the Ducks have arrived. I don't think they have. Hmm. Um, but it has been a nice story. They're showing a lot more competitive spirit so far this yeah. year. So I could be wrong. And you never know in that division. It's wide open in the Pacific. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that, um, you know, they are getting contributions from places that we would not have expected. <laughs> and it bodes really well for them. So Troy Terry is the most obvious obvious example um he's you know he's been on fire pretty much all season and you know at 23 24 years old it's like yeah technically he's a bit of a late nhl bloomer even though he was amazing as a, a college player and and during his world junior days but like isaac lundestrom is playing really well and that was a prospect that you know i remember when he was in the draft i was like ooh, i like this kid a lot you know he's got a lot of great potential as you know maybe a number two center but definitely a good two-way center um, at worst. And then he sort of dropped off a bit, but now it seems like he's sort of found his place early on. And again, he's only 21, so he's not that old. Sonny Milano has eight points for the Ducks. And this is a guy that's bounced around several organizations, but he seemed to find a home there. So what I like about the Ducks now is that they don't have to depend on Zegris and Jamie Drysdale to be the future in the present. You know, like I think Jamie Drysdale is third amongst Anaheim Blue Liners in scoring because Cam Fowler and Kevin Chattenkirk are providing mm -hmm. offense as well. So that means that Zegers and Drysdale have a bit of cover where they can continue to develop and grow at the NHL level, but the spotlight's not going to be as searing because, hey, they're winning games. Ryan Getzlaff is like reborn as this great veteran captain. Yeah. I mean, he's always been a great veteran captain, but now he's putting up tons of points, mostly assists. Troy Terry is the story. John Gibson is back to be an old school John Gibson. So I think they're in a really good spot where guys like Zegers and Drysdale, and then you mentioned Mason McTavish, they don't have to be rushed into situations they're not ready for. Uh, they don't have to have too many minutes. Um, so I, you know what? Are the Ducks like for real, for real? I don't know. But I think that long term, they're in really good shape. Uh, and I think Jacob Perot had a, a Michigan goal in the AHL the other night, too. So they do still have guys coming. But the fact that there's some holes getting plugged by the Lundestroms and Milanos of the world. I think bodes really well for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're gonna. I have one question. For you oh, guys. okay. It could almost be a, a rapid fire question. All right. That's the new Spider-Man trailer comes out today. Who was the best Spider-Man? Oh, <sighs> best. Uh, to me, to me, it, it is Tom Holland. I know that's an easy mm. answer, but I think that he sort of embodies everything the character should be mm. because. If you look at Tobey Maguire, he was a almost. I mean, he Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man was good, but he almost went so far down the dorky, the dorky side. Mm. And I think that Andrew Garfield was too cool. Mm. He was almost like too quippy, and like 
you didn't buy him as a nerd. Whereas I think Tom Holland kind of straddles that line perfectly where he's innocent and he's sort of boyish, but he's kind of nerdy, but not too nerdy. You could see still see the potential for him to grow into more of a, you know, well-rounded person. So I, I think he's a perfect Spider-Man. Yeah, I would go Tom Holland as well. But also shout out to uh, Spider-Verse Miles Morales. Well, I know, I know, I know that's not the actor's name that voiced him, but I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember who did the voice of Miles Morales, but uh, yeah, I agree. You know, Spider-Man is supposed to be young and like trying to figure it out. Um, but I will say, Tobey Maguire was good as the sort of like established Spider-Man. Like once Spider-Man found his sort of like superhero legs, then it was like, you know, particularly I think in the second one with Doc Ock. Um, that was a that was a very good Spider-Man in his prime for sure. Can anybody be the most anticipated trailer in the history of social media? Could really? be. It could be. Yeah, we're gonna oh. see all the all dem Spideys in, the, in okay. the same trailer. For my money, still Into the Spider Verse is the best Spider-Man movie of all time, even more than Spider-Man Two. I love Spider-Man Three. Oh, I'm sure I'm you do. Yes, <laughs> Spider-Man Three has one great scene. Okay, so. Uh, rapid fire. It's a great transition to rapid fire. Right. We've already been warmed up now. Official rapid fire. That's right. I am the host of rapid fire this week. So I will start it off with this. Okay. Who is your all-time goat in the category of love to have this guy on our team, but hate to play against him? Oh, all time. I think you have to go with Claude Lemieux because he's got the uh, con Smythes and the cups to back it all up. And of course, you know, he started like one of the most famous brawls in hockey history. Yeah, good pick. Yeah. I'm going to say Scott Stevens just because he was a menace out there. So mm -hmm. if he's not on my team, I'm constantly fearing him injuring people. That's good. Uh, for our top 100 defenseman uh, special magazine, I interviewed him, and he sort of talked about the art of hitting and how he just measured the timing. and the, He could understand the gap between him and, Pete and, and his opponent and understand exactly when to time it to just blow up people. <laughs> uh, this is pretty crazy. Um, yeah, so just for fear of my teammates and myself, I'd want him on my team. Hmm. Question two. I know it was settled sort of in a video game, but the video game wasn't that popular. Mm. Robocop versus Terminator, 1984 Terminator, so the Arnie model. Mm. Who wins the fight? I'm going to say Terminator because Robocop still has some human flesh to him. And it's funny, I watched Robocop fairly recently. He just doesn't, he wasn't unstoppable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas the Terminator is the Terminator. So I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with Arnie on that one. I agree. Cause Murphy, I think, yeah, like you said, he can still feel pain. He has yeah. some pain receptors uh, and he's, he's a bit more bulky, just his movements totally. in, in his armor. Whereas the exoskeleton or the, the, yeah, the, the metal exoskeleton is so it just doesn't quit. And to the point where in Terminator one, it's like, even when the skin's gone, it's still crawling. Mm -hmm. Even when it's cut in half, it's still crawling. After Sarah Connor. So. And fun fact, Arnold Schwarzenegger was supposed to play Robocop. Yes, that's right. But he was too big. He looked like the Michelin Man, they yeah. said, right? Did you watch that episode? I did. Yeah, the movies, the man is there. Yes, you go. I did. Okay, next question. Are you team Game Boy or team Game Gear? Uh, Game Boy for sure, because I never even had Game Gear. Um, yeah, Game Boy was like a revelation when I was a kid, because I was the perfect age for Game Boy. So, yeah, that was like all family road trips were now a walk in the park. I was Game Boy as well. Shout out Tetris, Link's Awakening, great Game Boy game. Although it was always fun, like if you were on a school trip and somebody had Game Gear, like the graphics were better, you had color, mm. it was fun. Okay. You were so old. Yeah, oh, no. yeah. Well, it's funny, the fact that we did Game Boy or Game Gear and not like PSP or whatever. I had never even seen a Game Gear. Yeah, or, or Nintendo Switch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
But hey, I know my audience. My audience is someone who's That's older right. than me. That's right. Okay. Gen X has been ignored for far too long. That's right. This is our time. So in honor of the amazing goal that Connor McDavid scored against the Rangers, what mm. is the greatest goal you've ever seen? Ooh, I mean, I always default to the Alex Ovechkin sliding goal against Air. Well, I guess it was Phoenix at the time. Uh, the Coyotes. Just because it was so like out of the blue where you thought like this play is dead and he actually did it. So that's the one that immediately comes to mind for me. So I'll go with that one. Yeah, that's my pick as well. Just the fact that he was able to do that crazy twisting motion, slide the puck under his body. Unbelievable. Um, there's a Denny Savard goal in the 80s when he was a Blackhawk against, I think it was against the Oilers. It was pretty ridiculous too, where he just like gif worthy lit up three different defenders and undressed the entire team. Nice. But the highlight never looks as good because the goalie just kind of does the fall. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay. What was your go-to arcade game back in the day? So I'm talking actually Ooh. setting foot in the arcade. What are you going to play? All right. So this is a fun one because it is still my go-to game when I go to barcades at this point because that's the only place you can play old school games. Centipede. Love Centipede. You got the rollerball instead of the joystick. And uh, it's just super fun. It's really intense too because uh, it's such a fast game. And you have the sort of sidebar of do I kill the spider right away or do I let him eat up some of the mushrooms for me? So there's that little sort of uh, sidebar there as well. Although shout out to like Street Fighter 2 because that was like the ultimate. You go to Becker's convenience store and mm -hmm. you put your quarter up there and you line up with the other kids. But my go-to is Centipede. Yeah, good picks. I, I was a big Golden Axe guy as well. Ooh, that's Golden good. Guy, cooperative play. Yeah. I think I was a slightly younger arcade generation. I was near the tail end of arcades. So mm -hmm. I played a lot of Turtles in Time. Not oh, just, yeah. There's also a Ninja Turtles the arcade game, but I really love Turtles in Time because mm. you can play with four people. Yeah. Every level is a different you know, part of one level. You're on a pirate ship. Next level, you're in a cowboy universe and, mm. and so on. Also, shout out to the X-Men game where you could have, I think it was six people total. One time, uh, me and my brother and my three cousins, we were all in Myrtle Beach with our families and we beat it. Amazing. Yes. Oh, and also right before COVID shut everything down, uh, I think we, me, you, and Steven beat Ninja Turtles, the arcade game in St. Louis. That's they right. Had that bar an arcade. It wasn't Turtles in Time. It was the original OG yeah. arcade game. And I'm pretty sure we played the whole thing and beat it. Yeah. Okay. La about 50, yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. Still counts. Yes, of course. Uh, last question is, what is the greatest birthday party you ever had in terms of a cool theme? Oh, well, you know what? The one that comes to mind for me is... Uh, you know, I grew up in Mississauga and uh, there was a, a new mall, Air Mills Town Center, that was like built while we were living there. And in the middle of the mall, there was a mini golf course that they put in. But it wasn't windmill style. It was actually they took famous golf course holes cool. and miniaturized them, um, which in in retrospect, I wouldn't care about it at all. But it was kind of like this like classy mini golf. And I remember I had my party there one year where all you know, me and my friends, I think we were probably like tweens at the time. So we did mini golf there. Uh, and then I think I had a giant cookie, you know, those giant mall cookies. Nice. Uh, so that one springs to mind for me. That was a pretty good birthday. Party. All right. Good pick. My runner up is going to be Scooter's Roller Palace. 
which is uh, Oakville, Mississauga border. Great place for a birthday party. Oh, yeah. Uh, but my number one is, so when I was in grade seven, we did a murder mystery where everybody that was invited was given a character. They had to dress up and be the character. My dad was the detective and interviewed everybody. Wow. And then like chose a murderer and then kill, killed the murderer on the spot. But the cool twist is when I turned 30, we brought back like 80% of the cast and we nice. redid it as 30-year-olds. Wow. And everyone had to play their same character. Wow. That's pretty, pretty good. Fun. Yeah. Okay, well, that concludes this episode. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for watching and listening, everyone. Let's cross our fingers for no more teams getting COVID. We want to see those Olympics. I can feel myself.